This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. News this morning uh, of a man's body being recovered at the Devil's Punch Bowl. Uh, I guess which thought uh, to be started as a rope rescue turned into a recovery. To talk more about all of this, Rick Zamperin, of course, news director with 900 CHML. You were there this morning mm-hmm. uh, during the uh, press conference and such. W- what's going on down there? Uh, well, no, no news conference as of yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, police have not uh, issued any statement as to what has happened. But what we do know is that uh, a man was found uh, this morning at about 7.30. Uh, Police, firefighters, paramedics called to the scene, and uh, they are at this point uh, still pulling the body out of the Devil's Punch Bowl, uh, and they are doing so um, what would commonly be referred to as a rope rescue. I guess this would be a rope recovery because the Mm -hmm. individual has died. But they are pulling the body um, uh, upwards um, at the top of the embankment as opposed to carrying it out on foot because it's simply too dangerous for for uh, mm-hmm. firefighters to go in there and, and get uh, the man's body. So uh, they're doing that at this point. Uh, in terms of what happened, uh, we are left to guess whether um, uh, this individual slipped and fell, whether this person um, was a victim of foul play, uh, or whether it was death by suicide. Uh, police have not confirmed any of those scenarios. The identity of the individual uh, remains a mystery as well. We don't have an age and certainly don't have a name. Um, I discovered this morning at around 7.30-ish, by who do we know any of that information? No, not at all. We don't know if it was someone who was walking their dog or just visiting the punch bowl. Mm -hmm. You know, the weather at the time was, uh, you know, uh, obviously a bit cool uh, Mm -hmm. at that time of the day. Uh, Sun was shining, so certainly, uh, you know, it, it... it wasn't any slipper, slipperier than yeah. it had been in the past. Uh, you know, no snow, obviously no rain. Um, we don't have any information on how, how the person was found. Uh, and obviously what time the fall happened. It could have happened last night. It could have happened this morning. Yeah, we it don't could know. have happened at 7.30 yeah, one yeah. or or at twelve thirty uh, or sometime late last night, uh, we don't have that information either. So we don't know who made the call to uh, no EMS to get out there and no. and investigate this. Um, was this ever a rescue? Was this always a recovery? Uh, it was always a recovery, from the best of our knowledge. Uh, uh, apparently, uh, the person who spotted uh, the, the victim, if we can call uh, this man. Um, Simply said, you know, there's a body at, at the base right. of the punch bowl, and by the time emergency crews got there, that that man had already died. Uh, boy, there's been a lot of situations, and it's the geography yeah. of this great area that we live in. Uh, it seems that we're this is happening more and more now. Again, we obviously don't know the history sure. or the scenario surrounding this event, um, but does something need to be done as far as getting people just to back mm-hmm. off? These do we need to fence these things off? I know the discussion certainly this year and and I mean we were talking about this last summer as well whether it's you know the Devil's Punch Bowl or Webster's Falls yeah. or Albion Falls uh, Choose Falls any of the I mean we're the city of waterfalls so pick you know pick yeah. uh, which one you want to visit there are you know dozens of them out there uh, but there has been talk of um, you know, fencing off the area, uh, you know, securing the lookout points, um, you know, installing more warning signs if, you know, if that's mm-hmm. the case. I'm not sure any of those would work uh, because if you put up a fence, someone can, if they want to, climb yeah. that fence and, and go where they want to go. So, I right. mean, uh, from a liability standpoint, really, you can't really blame the city for doing what they've done. I mean, there's lookout points, there's there's warning signs, there's all that kind of stuff. So, 
Uh, it's really uh, choose your own adventure. Uh, uh, what about EMS? Are they concerned about the sheer numbers of calls they've had to deal with and the increase? Well, yeah, I'm sure whenever someone has obviously died or, I mean, we've had dozens of injuries as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's cause for concern. I mean, if you're a member of the, the general public, you know that this is happening. You you understand that there is, you know, an inherent risk when you are traversing over these uh, you know, whether it's tree yeah. trunks or rocks or, or, or uneven terrain, that there's a chance something can go awry. And, and whether this individual was uh, thinking about that at the time and, and who knows what time this happened, uh, it's hard to guess. Any idea when more info will be available? Well, uh, we're, we're thinking fairly soon, within the next 15, maybe even 30 minutes, uh, mm-hmm. to get some sort of uh, you know uh, correspondence from Hamilton Police to see what exactly happened. All right, Rick Sampern has been with us. Thanks for joining us, Anytime. Rick. Thanks, and, of Scott. course, uh, bringing us update on what has uh, happened at Devil's Punch Bowl. As soon as we find out more, we will pass it along to you. Thanks to Rick Sampern, News Director at CHML. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A man's body uh, recovered from the Devil's Punch Bowl this morning. Uh, emergency crews called it about uh, 7.35 this morning for reports there was a person spotted uh, at the base. Uh, at this point, we really don't have any information uh, outside of, of what we have just given you and what you can see at 900CHML.com. Uh, apparently, Rick Zamperin was uh, commenting, News Director Rick Zamperin, that uh, probably within 30 minutes, uh, hopefully, he is expecting to get some sort of confirmation and, uh, and, and some sort of uh, statement from police adding to all of this. But it certainly does... Uh, bring into question the amount of rope rescues that uh, Hamilton EMS have been involved in. And we certainly know of the stories that uh, are pretty much every weekend of the overcrowding and the amount of people that are going into certain areas, uh, not necessarily uh, in and around the Devil's Punch Bowl, but certainly around the falls. And there have been many reports of this sort of thing. Uh, someone asked if, in fact, anyone has to pay for this. And it's, well, it's the taxpayer. I mean, uh, over and above, above, if there's a trespassing charge, I don't believe that you are responsible uh, for what uh, the courageous men and women do with the EMS to try to get you uh, back to safety. Uh, what is involved in all of this? Uh, how is it done? Uh, Dan Kurban is with us, regional man- uh, manager in Ontario for Raven Rescue, and he is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? Good. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. What is Raven Rescue? Um, Raven Rescue, we're a provider of training equipment and safety services in high-risk environments across Canada. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the situation in Hamilton, but we're the city of waterfalls, you know. Yeah, I've been doing a bit of research. You have some beautiful parkland in your city. And we have been promoting the bejeebers out of that for the last (laughs) decade, and now we find ourselves swamped with people. And these calls seem to be an ongoing uh, occurrence here in Hamilton. Give us a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, some some story as to how difficult these are, how, how dangerous these sorts of rescues are. Well, whenever we're dealing with a high-angle um, high environment, we're dealing with quite a bit of risk. Um, now the fire, fire department and other first responders mitigate that risk through their setups, and, and we're just dealing with either high-angle, which is straight up and down, or steep angles, which I think is the bottom of the punch bowl there, but oftentimes that's a little too hazardous, and it's a little safer to bring people straight up rather than try to hike them out. How long does something like this take? What's, what sort of logistics are involved before? You, it's not like you just throw a rope over and down we go. No, not including the countless hours of training. Um, a call can 
can last for several hours. Our first priority really is to get some stabilization and get some contact with the patient. Once we have contact with them um, and they're stable, we can, we can take a little more time setting up the best system possible to get them up and out of the hazardous area. You talk about the best system possible. What are your options when you've basically got something like the punch bowl, which is a drop straight down? Well, all the systems that, uh, that we'd be using are, are what's known as a two-rope system. So one rope is doing all the heavy lifting, um, and then the other rope is just a safety rope in case something happens to that first rope. That's why there's a bit of time in setting it up. They have a few options. They can either use a litter basket to load the patient in and bring the whole basket up with a rescuer, or they may, because of how easy it is to access, they may use just putting a harness on the victim and, and raising the victim up without all the, all the extra size and space that a litter may take. Uh, how many have to go down in order to get one up? Generally, you'll, you'll be seeing one person go down initially as a go-rescuer to make some initial assessments and give some reports from the bottom. And then oftentimes it can take another person to help package that person into the litter or into the harness um, before we start raising them. We'll often send somebody up with the patient or with the, uh, with the victim um, at the same time, so there'll be two people on the rope system, and wow. all these systems are rated to have two people on them. Uh, how many would be involved in something like that? Would it take a minimum of four, six, eight? Um, teams, you're generally looking at at a minimum of, of 10 to 20 in a, in a large-scale operation like this because you take four to five people operating on each line as well as you have safety people at the edge, and, uh, and fire departments will have a safety officer um, as well as officers that are overseeing everything to ensure that it's done safely and with minimal risk to the members that are performing the rescue. Obviously, before you do everything, you want to make sure whatever it is that you are doing does not translate into something worse. Absolutely. We don't want the snowball effect to start going. Uh, what, uh, when it's time to actually haul someone up, how is that done? Is that done manually? Is that done through a winch-type system? How do you do that? No, whenever we've got a person on the line, that's always done manually through, uh, through what would be called a haul system, either integrated into the line or separate. We don't want to use mechanical, um, so we just use it manually using ropes and pulleys. If we use it mechanically, we're going to be putting too much force on it, so if there is a snag or, or the person gets trapped on something, the mechanical device won't be able to tell and will just keep pulling. Right. So it's much safer to have people pulling with, uh, with hands rather than machine. Simply because they can feel what's on the line. Absolutely. They can tell if there's any resistance at all. How much, tra- you talked about the training that happens before uh, these people get to a call. Talk a little bit about that. Before there's someone who is, say, qualified to go over uh, a falls or over a, uh, something like a devil's punch bowl, what sort of training, back training goes into that? How much time before someone is qualified to do such a rescue? Well, generally, and this is overseen or, or provided by the NFPA, generally people will be what's known as a technician before they're going over the edge. Mm-hmm. That, that, that requires several weeks of base training, um, as well as regular training. Most, most departments or most teams are, cha- are, pardon me, are training on a weekly basis. And just over experience uh, and time, being able to make the decisions while they're down there. Once a, once a rescuer is over the edge and something comes up at the bottom, they're going to be making a lot of decisions that they need the, the training and experience to be able to do. 
Uh, would um, this is special training over and above what a firefighter or, or any sort of worker like that w- would have? Is, are these these are special units that would go to certain calls? You bet. Um, generally, uh, they'll be part of a regular fire hall that al- also provides fire services, but this mm-hmm. is another specialty over and above that they're training extra on. Uh, I, I don't know how aware you are, Dan, of, of what's happened in this area and just the sheer amounts of people that have invaded these beautiful natural attractions and the Absolutely. problems that have been caused by them. H- how do you monitor this? How do you do you put fences around everything? How do you how do you keep these places safe? I don't know. As as Rick was saying, um, if you put a fence up around things, people are just prone to climb the fences. Mm-hmm. Having having good signage and good public education, um, not only just marketing, but making sure the information is there for people to know how hazardous it can be, um, and solid planning by the conservation authority that are making access to these beautiful areas available. Dan Kerban has been with us, regional manager uh, regional manager in Ontario for Raven Rescue, talking about. Uh, just generally the uh, sheer numbers of calls that EMS have received in Hamilton to do some sort of rope rescue or recovery. Dan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right. uh, Lots to talk about today with uh, Ross McLean, crime specialist. You can uh, find out more at rossmcleansecurity.com. The Facebook page is Crime Power and Politics. We were talking earlier on about the situation at uh, the Devil's Punch Bowl and exactly, uh, you know, what has transpired over there. Uh, Also, uh, in the news as well, uh, Halton police officer has uh, been involved in a shooting, plainclothes officer, in a situation in Toronto. Plus, we have a breaking story going on uh, in regard to uh, Prince Edward Island, which we're also looking into, where their schools are being evacuated. Ross McLean, crime specialist, is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? I'm doing good, Scott. Good to be with you. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. First of all, before we get into uh, the SIU investigation and the Halton police officer, what can you tell us about what's going on in PEI? From what we understand, uh, schools have been evacuated there, and we, we are not seeming to hear too much information beyond that. Yeah, there is not a lot of information. Apparently what happened is the RCMP in Ottawa actually received a fax that came into their office that had an explicit threat that said that there was going to be multiple bombs that were planted in PEI schools that were going to go off today. So that's what uh, caused the uh, the RCMP to go into action and work to uh, evacuate all those schools, make sure everyone's safe. Uh, they certainly took the threat serious enough to be able to take those actions. So they must have found uh, just a few more things than it looking like a prank in their in their comedian investigation. So at this point, does it appear like it was a prank? Is there anything else involved in this, do we know? Well, I think the investigation will bear that out. Certainly they'll be searching uh, each of the schools, they'll be having a look through them to see what's going on, and then find out from there. As you know, we've talked about before, things like bomb threats uh, and threats like this, sometimes they come in just to cause the excitement of doing the issue and there's no real bomb. In fact, you're way more likely to have a bomb threat against you than you ever are a bomb. Hmm. Uh, but in this day and age, of course, with the bombings we're seeing everywhere, the homemade bombs that are being done by people, uh, we've got refugees certainly that are out on the East Coast and other people that are out that way. You know, and why all of PEI would be targeted are all questions that they'll be looking at to try and narrow down who, who would have put this threat through. So at this sign, there, there's at this time rather, there's been no sign of any sort of bomb found or any material that would lead them to believe this was an actual threat. Not that I'm aware of, but I haven't heard an update or so in the last hour. So not as not that I'm aware of. 
but certainly, even with the you know the facts that came in, there'll be lots to follow up on that, where the facts originated from, uh, how that happened, who had who had access to that fax machine and that fax number, and those sort of things. So they'll be running down the leads to get to the bottom of this. How great does a threat have to be before they'll take such a, such action and and remove all the students? Well, you have to consider everything in context, and some of the context you look at uh, is the specificity of the threat. You know, the source of the threat. For instance, if you had, uh, uh, you know, a voice recording left and it sounded like it was by a nine year old boy and you hear giggling in the background, mm-hmm. you're not going to take that as serious as you would, uh, you know, someone using a voice change analyzer, leaving a very specific threat and uh, naming the reason why they're doing it, that there's a grudge. So you, you look to see what the probability is if there's enough red flags. And you almost just can't be careful these days. And uh, as we've talked before, universities and schools these days all have lockdown processes and evacuation processes. So if nothing else, I guess they all had a chance to do the drill today and look to see if they've got anything to improve upon or how they're doing out in PEI. And I guess, as you mentioned, considering the times that we're living in, I mean, uh, they may have looked at this entirely different 15 years ago or 20 years ago than they do now. I mean, they have to investigate all of these, don't they? Oh, oh a- absolutely. And, and look, there was, I'm trying to remember the specific case. There was one uh, uh, at the university, I don't remember which one it was on the East Coast there, there was a man who threatened he was going to take his guns and go in and blow everybody away in the school. And guess what? It was somebody, it was a student who had mental problems who had access to firearms. And the police uh, became aware of the threat and managed to take him down. So it's, un- it's, it's God bless us, you know, it's the reality of what we're dealing with today. It's, it's not good. So, uh, in the end of the day, it appears that this uh, this situation in PEI is not as serious as first thought. Are we is it are we safe enough to say that at this point? Or I, I'm not going to say that. The only information that I have is that they received a fax in threat, and the threat was credible enough that they felt they needed to act on it. So that tells me that there's something more to it. At least it was considered to be a credible threat, and that the source looked credible. So they'll want to run down who it is that's making uh, uh, making the threat and. The RCMP are pretty good at that, so let's hope they uh, let's hope they find out the source of it, so we can put everybody to rest. All the parents don't have to worry about sending their kids off to school because they'll have the person in who made the threat. Let's hope that's the case. Obviously, uh, post nine eleven anniversary, we saw what had happened in the United States and in Minnesota and in New York City. Um, any reason to believe that this is part of a string of things, or that this could be just somebody that's taking advantage of the opportunity and placing a crank call? Uh, well, there's, I've heard no indication that there is any sort of uh, claim as to what group was behind it or what the purpose or what the motive is. So, uh, I mean, we don't, we don't know on that. But, you know, certainly you're right. You list, you've listed off a string of uh, terror-type attacks that have taken place, and there's more to go to that list. Remember, there was the um, uh, New York police officer hit with a meat cleaver mm-hmm. uh, last week. There was the Philadelphia police officer that was shot six or seven times sitting in her car by someone yelling out Alu Akbar, and we still have not uh, found out the motive behind the Calgary Mall shooting as far as I, or, or machete attack, as far as I understand. So it's certainly there is Islamic holidays uh, that have just gone by, and people are on high alert for that. So, you know, we'll see if it's connected. Uh, we don't know. We don't want to jump to that conclusion, but it's a, it's a reasonable question. All right, the SIU is investigating after two men were shot in the annex in Toronto yesterday. A gunman shot by, poli- uh, by a plainclothes uh, Halton officer who was conducting surveillance in the area. What, what, can we, what can we learn from this? What can you tell us about this? Yeah, it's a pretty interesting case. I was just down there uh, at the site. I took some pictures, talked to a few other of the good uh, you know, crime reporters we have here in the city, Cam Willie and uh, Chris Doucette of the Toronto Sun, to see what uh, they were able to rouse up. 
uh, to find out what was going on. And it looks like it's a pretty serious case here where it looks like we have a targeted hit. And uh, they've, they've just identified uh, who the suspect is. The police have not confirmed it, but sources are saying the person's name is Grayson DeLong. He's the man who's in hospital in serious condition that the police shot. And my understanding is that man, uh, it's not his first run-in with the police. He's got a rather involved uh, background with the police, and that's, that's yet to come out what's going on there with that suspect. How was the lawyer involved? Well, this is a lawyer. He's a rather interesting lawyer. He's on a little uh, stretch there in Yorkville, a very exclusive part uh, of, of Toronto. It costs a lot of money to live there and a lot of money to have offices there. Clayton Ruby, the famous lawyer, is in there. His Bentley is parked out in the back. There's a bunch of Mercedes 500s. Uh, I mean, it's just, hmm. it looks like a car dealership lot down there for the stars, uh, where, where the location is. And uh, this lawyer is a famous lawyer. He's been around since the 70s. He practices specifically, he does a lot of work on drug cases, defending uh, people charged in drug cases. He's got lots of experience at, uh, in the law with dealing with wiretap cases, to trying to exclude evidence on wiretaps. Uh, he's defended the people who are involved in the largest marijuana uh, bust operation we've had in Canada, where the Molson plant was took, taken over outside of Barrie, and the whole thing was turned into hydroponics for mm. growing pot. You know, he's defending those clients, so he's had some very, um, let's say, interesting clients that he's been dealing with over a period of time uh, for dealing with it. We're waiting to see. We're trying to find some information as to what this may be connected to. Uh, I've talked to some of the people there yet. We don't know that he was actually just coming back from court or leaving his office to get into his car to leave uh, when, when it took place. We don't know that there's a connection between the suspect uh, who shot him but I'll tell you, Scott, it has all the markings of a of a mob type uh, hit. Hmm. Uh, do we know what the relationship is with the lawyer and the guy who shot him? Other than a bunch of bullets that he shot right into him. I mean, let, let me tell you what happened here. Where the where the car was uh, positioned on the driveway, my suspicion is this man would have been sitting in his, in his car, a Honda Civic, which I think we'll probably also find out that's not his car. It would have been a stolen car used to do this uh, hit. Uh, as soon as he saw the lawyer uh, either getting out of the car or coming up to the door, he roared up in the Honda Civic to within about 10 feet of where the lawyer was in his car, jumped out and proceeded to fire, fire several shots uh, at the lawyer. And interestingly enough, they were all aimed to the uh, lower part of his body, sort of the abdomen on down and in the legs. Uh, the lawyer uh, went down, was bleeding profusely. This man who, uh, who, who took the shot, he was wearing an orange construction vest, uh, which we've seen before for mob-type hits. What the hitmen do, uh, Scott, is they wear these orange vests or something else. So if witnesses are looking there, they take particular notice of the orange vest, but they don't look at the other details. Mm. So then they can throw the orange vest after and make their getaway. We've had another hit like that in Toronto done. But uh, wow. so the, the strange thing here is shots into the, into the body and the legs, not to the head. Yeah. Not to the head. But when the man, uh, the shooter, is escaping, apparently, uh, gets jumps back in his car, he sees that the lawyer is actually getting up. He's not dead. And he, if you can believe this, uh, Scott, he fires a shot, apparently, from inside of his car with his window up, oh. shattering his window back at the lawyer again as he sees the lawyer getting up. Uh, the lawyer's struggling to walk away to get back to his office. You can see the blood trail there. I posted a picture uh, of what was there, uh, you know, a fair bit of blood. And at that time, uh, these Halton Regional, now they're calling them plainclothes. Uh, to my mind, they're going to be intelligence officers, uh, were there, rolled up, and uh, then shot and took out the shooter. 
So I, th- I think there's uh, a lot to be told here yet. We're probably not going to get a lot of the details. I think this was a uh, an intelligence investigation. So uh, were, were people under surveillance at the time of the shooting, and therefore because they were under surveillance uh, were able to, to react so quickly, or did they come in after the fact? Well, the surveillance may have either been, and I'm, of course I'm speculating at this point, this is just my, my guess from uh, my years of looking at these things, the surveillance was either on the lawyer or on the one who was doing the shooting. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and at this point, I mean, I don't know if uh, you know, the police knew what they were looking at when the shooting went down, if that surprised them, or if that was a person they were looking at, uh, and they were surprised that the person went to shoot, and they had to uh, come out from under their cover and go in and, of course, uh, try and take the person down. So uh, obviously, if well, maybe not obviously, if um, if this these people or persons weren't under surveillance, there could have easily been a death here. Oh, quite easily. There was there was quite a number of shots fired. It's let's say it's interesting. Um, you know, both the victim and the shooter are, are still alive, uh, if you will. If we'll find out what the reason was for it, they said a, a lot of the times. Now it may well be that this guy who was doing the shooting. He may be a bad guy, but maybe not the most experienced guy at uh, hitting or, or shooting people. Because mm-hmm. as I said, there was, I don't mean to be graphic here for doing it, but there was not a headshot, which, yeah. is, which is usually uh, uh, pretty typical for doing it. But, you know, criminals, when they're doing their crime, Scott, most people don't get this. They're not all like on TV. They're, they're pretty much crapping their pants a lot of the times when they're doing these mm. acts. They know they have to roll up and do it uh, for doing it. So mistakes get made and, and things happen. So hopefully we'll be able to sort it out. So we don't know at this point what, uh, who was under surveillance or why they were under surveillance. No, we don't know, and we may not know that because it, it was an intelligence. It was an intelligence operation. We may just get some generic information. The SIU, um, you know, is sometimes forthcoming with information and sometimes not very forthcoming with information uh, for doing it. But if there is a surveillance on, I mean, that's a budgeted project that costs a lot of money that takes a lot of officers to do, generally speaking. So it would have been for something. Uh, worthwhile that they were investigating. So because, uh, well, uh, so this could be part of a bigger investigation because it is and sort of what went down and as you put it, those officers now uh, coming out from under their cover and and, and now we have a a shooting on our hands. Uh, Is it possible that we won't find out more information about this? Uh, It's possible. We'll find out some. We'll find out more certainly because there'll be charges against this shooter. Uh, if he lives. So we'll certainly find out about that. He'll be charged. And uh, they'll obviously be talking to the lawyer. I mean, look, just because someone's a lawyer and they defend bad criminals, that's really their job uh, profile, right? That's their job description is to is to protect people who aren't always innocent. Mm-hmm. And this lawyer has been at it for over 20 years, dealing at the highest levels. He's been to the Supreme Court. He's dealt with some of the worst characters uh, going in terms of organized crime and doing stuff. And he, he's lived uh, quite fine so far along. So We'll have to see what it is. It's not usually good practice by uh, mobsters to be, you know, shooting at your lawyers if that's the case. Mm. Uh, you said that this these things can get sloppy and not like it is on, on TV. Would that say that it was or it wasn't perhaps related to a gang or mob type hit? Well, I, I'll suggest that the guy, it was it was organized. I mean, there was a surveillance that was set up by this guy. He waited for the opportunity to see the person. He knew where his car was. He knew what he looked like. He knew where he worked. Uh, he came out, you know, he jumped out from a close range, fired a fair number of shots into him, and you know tried to fire one more when he was making his getaway. So it was uh, very much a determined, targeted uh, attack, uh, very much so. 
Uh, do you think we will find out that this is related to some sort of larger situation? I would think so. I mean, usually, uh, as we talked about before, whenever I look at uh, crimes and you're trying to figure out what's going on, is the biggest thing you can find out is the motivation. And once you know the motivation, you can understand how it took place and why it took place. And, uh, you know, was this over money? Was this over payments? Was this over somebody didn't get the deal they want in court? I mean, uh, what happened? We'll have to find out what the motivation is here and see if we get people talking and find out uh, the bigger story. All right, since I got you on the phone, Ross, I've got to ask you the latest on New York City. Uh, Obviously, uh, a man apprehended. We're finding out more and more about him and how he was involved uh, his father actually, I guess, uh, labeled him and, and told the FBI he was a terrorist uh, some time ago, uh, but then for some reason fell off uh, the, the radar of, uh, of police and, and law enforcement and such. Do we have anything more on this case and if there were any more involved in it? Well, what we need to find out is why his wife apparently left two days before, the, the, before it went down. He made travel into uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. You know, and Pakistan is really the under-the-radar country that's, uh, that has a lot to do with, all, with so much of the terror that goes on in the Middle East. They're obviously deeply involved with Afghanistan. The terrorists go back and forth freely across the border, uh, you know, and they, they do not like the United States and Pakistan. I mean, that's certainly for sure. They're a nuclear power. So we're going to find out more, hopefully, about his travels and how it got missed that someone was making the travels to this part of the world and it didn't show up on the radar. There certainly needs to be a tightening up of that. But, you know, you go back and you look at the way this guy committed his crime, Scott. Once again, they were, they were sloppy in that you could tell that he, he wasn't worried about being caught because he was intending to martyr himself and die at the end. That's why they were able to find his fingerprints on one of the bombs. Uh, one of the cell phones that was used to uh, trigger the bombs was actually registered in his name. He walked freely about New York, uh, knowing security cameras are on him without covering his face. So, you know, he was intending at some point, I'm sure, to be murdered and die at the end of this. But once again, his bombs did not go off. You know, they were not built properly. Only the one went off. The other ones they were able to deal with. So not, the criminals aren't all that good, uh, but we've got some great professional cops and police forces out there that are working hard to uh, get on top of them. What do we know about uh, the bomber's wife? Uh, and obviously, if the family knew of terrorist thoughts uh, of, uh, you know, their family member earlier on, uh, she must have known something. What can you tell us about her? And obviously, police are, I'm sure, interested in speaking with her quite quickly. Well, we don't know much about her at all, same as we don't know much about the wife of the Orlando shooter who was under surveillance and has left and went to the Middle East and is gone. And uh, she's gone. We, we don't know. You know, the, the big question for me is where, where was he building? He lived in the, you know, apparently above this chicken place that his family has owned for years, and he lived there. And there's quite a few people living in it. It doesn't look that big on camera. Where was he building and laying out this many pipe bombs and pressure cooker bombs? How did someone else know, not know, what he was doing. I mean, that's certainly a question that I have, that I've heard uh, nothing on it. I mean, it takes work. You have to lay it out. It's scary stuff when you're building bombs. As I tells you before, that's why a lot of guys lose fingers or lose hands. And, you know, it's not a, exactly a job um, that's not without his people. Was he there living, was he living there with his wife? Uh, Do we know? Uh, loose, loosely, I sort of understand that she was there, but I'm not sure what if she was over in Pakistan before or whatnot, he apparently has another girlfriend that he had here that he had a child with. And, you know, it's, it's all very sort of sketchy as the information's coming out. Hmm. Uh, but what certainly is not sketchy is it meets the profile that we've seen for these uh, jihadi terrorist type acts. I mean, that's certainly what we see. And I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to have all agencies, Canada included in this, 
tighten up the ability to know where people go when they leave the country and they go on travel and make sure that there's a unified list that is manageable and actionable. It didn't seem we have that in this case. Uh, you got to wonder how many of these people are operating underneath the radar and until they get to the point of, you know, attack, you, you just don't know about them. Yeah, well, this, you know, the, the, the story had come out that in 2014, NYPD was investigating this man for uh, trying to stab his brother mm-hmm. at that location. And his father made the comment to the, uh, to the police at the time that his son was a terrorist. And, you know, they did their job, the NYPD guys. They, they, they noted it up and sent the information off to the FBI. Now, they came and they looked at it. They talked to the father, and the father said, you know, I guess he was just sort of saying it in anger at the time and doing it. So the FBI, they have to clear these cases. They can't leave, uh, you know, a million people on watch. And so they decided, I guess, that there was no further reason to take action on this person, uh, that it wasn't a credible case that he was going to be a terrorist. They had to clear it, then move on to the next stack that they probably had of other people where they had similar allegations. Good point. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. The Facebook page is Crime, Power, and Politics. Always a pleasure, Ross. Thanks for the time. All right. We'll see if we solve this riddle, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, you heard us talk earlier this morning. More than 19,000 students in PEI were evacuated uh, from schools over a potential threat. Uh, It started with uh, French and and English uh, public schools and and then moved on to there uh, from there. And even three uh, three schools in Nova Scotia, uh, NSCC Marconi Campus, Cape Breton University and NSCC Technology Campus, even in Halifax, also evacuated due to a potential bomb threat. We were talking to Ross McLean about this a little earlier. It seems that the uh, there there hasn't been any evidence uh, to justify this threat at this point. However, they still are investigating. Uh, Jason Chevrier is with us. He is a student at Holland College, Prince of Wales, Charlottetown campus, and uh, was there when all of a sudden was told to leave, and he is with us now. Hello, Jason. How are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So you're at school. What happened? Uh, yeah, no, uh, our teacher, uh, I guess we were about a half hour into my uh, second class of the day. Uh, my teacher was at the front of the class doing his thing, and uh, he had his phone uh, up there with him, and uh, he, I guess he got a call uh, on his phone. He told us uh, that he had to leave uh, to take the call, uh, came back a couple minutes later and uh, told us uh, he didn't want to alarm anybody, but he said that... Uh, um, that uh, schools were being evacuated. Uh, he didn't really specify any sort of threat per se, but he said schools are being evacuated to uh, because of a threat. And he said uh, he didn't want to alarm anybody, but uh, any parents in the room might want to give uh, make some phone calls themselves just to kind of organize, find out exactly uh, what was going on with their own kids. And uh, about two minutes later, uh, two to five minutes later, I guess, uh, Someone uh, came into the room and uh, told us uh, that school was uh, being uh, evacuated and uh, we all needed to leave, and uh, that was about it. It was pretty calm, really, um, other than that. But, uh, yeah, no, it was it was a weird moment, for sure. I'd never really experienced something like that before. And this is a college, so older students, obviously. Yeah, post-secondary education, yeah, for sure. Uh, we're all adults, uh, at least, uh, you know, 18 years of mm-hmm. age anyways, and uh uh, did they tell you where to go? Did they tell you what to do, just or just simply leave the building? Yeah, uh, yeah. For us, of course, we're all adults, so you know, I guess we could kind of make our way out and uh, right. kind of know where to go from there. But yeah, no, they just kind of said uh, we needed to get out of the building. They didn't actually even really say why. Um, the only reason we knew why was because our teacher had told us beforehand, kind of what was going on, because he's a parent himself. 
So he had kind of uh, heard for uh, from whoever he was speaking to on the telephone before. Uh, but yeah, no, we uh, were just told to leave the building, and uh, uh, classes were canceled for the day. Uh, any idea who he was calling? Uh, would all of these teachers have received the same message at the same time? No, I believe it was a family member of some sort, maybe his wife, perhaps, uh, or some maybe another school official or something like that. He didn't really specify who he was speaking to on the phone. Um, but of course, I mean, I'm taking a computer course. So we were all sitting at computers there, and I did a quick Google search to find out what was going on. And uh, yeah, did, I couldn't believe actually that that every school on on the island apparently had been uh, evacuated as of that point in time. Uh, you said obviously people were quite calm and 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 did as were told. What was the feeling uh, once you were told you had to leave? What was the what was the buzz like in there? Uh, it, was, it was a little confusing, I guess, at first. I mean, obviously myself, I'm not a parent, so. Um, the, the, you know, the worry wasn't quite there, uh, with me as it maybe was with some of the, the other parents, uh, in, in the room, you know, who had to kind of figure out where their kids were and, uh, what was going on with their kids, of course. So, uh, I, I think the concern was more on their part. Myself, I was, uh, I was more just thinking, you know, I'll get out of here and maybe figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my day, considering I'm not going to be in class and so maybe go home and, uh, make a plan on what to do, uh, figure out. Um, you know, maybe learn on my own, I guess, for the day instead of uh, being lectured and things like that. Were you aware or were the other students aware where you were that all of the schools were being evacuated? It just wasn't you guys? Yeah, not not initially. Um, but like I said, I did the, the Google search there and, uh, you know, was reading some articles online. And uh, that's when we realized that it was more than just us. And it wasn't a, a specific threat uh, to our school. Um, but that it was the the entire province, which uh, I figured at the time, well, I figured, well, geez, this must be pretty significant for them to to take that drastic of uh, a measure to to evacuate every single school. I mean, I think there's between 45 and 50 just, you know, uh, primary, secondary schools, not including post-secondary schools on the island. So obviously it uh, would uh, have to be pretty major to disrupt that many people's lives, obviously. Uh, did you notice that disruption after you left? Did you see, like, all of a sudden all of these schools evacuating and, and, and alternate plans being made? Uh, it was a little bit chaotic at first. Obviously, a lot of people on their phones trying to figure out what was going on and, uh, um, you know, trying to figure out, as they say, where their kids were and, um, you know, making uh, plans for the day. I know a friend of mine in class, he has a five-year-old daughter, and, um, his uh, fiance had to come. Uh, she actually left work, and he doesn't have his own car, so she had to come pick him up. And uh, you know, they had to go and figure out where her daughter was actually located because they weren't sure exactly. Um, I guess they ended up finding her eventually, but nonetheless, yeah, there was a lot of those types of situations going on. A lot of uh, you know puzzled uh, looks and wondering uh, exactly what happened. But I guess all the kids, as far as I know, uh, got out safely, and they were taken to safe locations somewhere. Um, nearby uh, the schools uh, anyways, and I guess uh, they were able to meet up with uh, uh, parents, uh, you know, match kids with parents uh, after that. So uh, I guess a little bit of initial confusion, which sometimes happens in this sort of thing, but um, overall I think it was handled pretty well. Uh, what what are they telling you there uh, as to what has happened? What's the latest on this story? Uh, there's been very little communication from the college at this point. They did send out an email uh, afterwards just saying, you know, basically what we already knew, that the school was closing and uh, there would be a further announcement later on this afternoon. Haven't heard anything uh, from them at this point in time, um, but uh, I've just been kind of following along, watching the news on television as well and just trying to see exactly. So I basically know what you guys know at this point. Um, other than that, uh, you know, I guess they're doing sweeps of the schools this afternoon. Um, just to ensure that there wasn't uh, actually any physical threat there. 
Um, and then um, hopefully, I guess, they'll make an announcement later on this afternoon as to whether uh, we'll be back in class tomorrow. I'm assuming that will be the case unless um, they do find something this afternoon at some school. So at this point, it appears to be a hoax. Is that correct? Would that be accurate? Uh, uh, I, uh, I would say so. I, I think the RCMP was uh, trying to avoid that word at this point in time mm-hmm. until they knew for sure. But, uh, I mean, that's what it's looking like at this point. We don't know exactly where it emanated from or anything like that. But uh, nonetheless, yeah, it's uh, an interesting day, I guess, at the very least. Uh, certainly a stressful day if you're a parent. Uh, so what's the feeling like in PEI? I mean, you guys are, you know, you would think pretty much immune to this sort of thing, but I guess not. Yeah, no, I, I guess it, it does hit home sometimes, right? I mean, you, you just you know, you never really know. And uh, I mean, I'm sure there will be some people coming out in uh, in the days ahead saying, you know, why did you know you have to inconvenience this many people? But I mean, um, nonetheless, uh, you better you know err on the side of caution with these sorts of things. I know that uh, school officials were saying that you know there is no immediate threat, but nonetheless, we don't want to take any risks. You just never know. And um, PEI is a small place, and uh, you know I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of Holland College before, or any of these schools for that matter. But uh, nonetheless, when you hear about a threat like that, you just don't mess around these days. So. Jason Chevrier has been with us, student at, at uh, Holland College, Prince of Wales, Charlottetown. Uh, more than 19,000 students in PEI evacuated from schools today as a uh, as a result of a potential threat, which is still in uh, under investigation. Jason, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Not a problem at all. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Going into Monday night, I knew that James was going to impress people. I honestly didn't know what to expect. We need to keep an eye on you. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's crazy to tie for top score with Lorian Valve. I think the response from the public and the fans was, uh, who? who? <laughs> Wait, what? Who's, who's this guy? That's James Hinchcliffe. Come on, what are you, living under a rock? Uh, Oakville native, Indy car driver, of course, driver of the Aero-sponsored number five, and, of course, won the pole position for the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500 just a year after a extremely serious crash at the track, which uh, kept him out for an extended period of time. Uh, now he's, of course, uh, alternating between the fire suit and his dancing shoes. James Hinchcliffe is with us now, contestant on Dancing with the Stars. You know, it's one thing to be introduced as an Indy driver, now, what's it like to be introduced as a contestant's uh, contestant with Dancing in, in, of the Stars, or Dancing with the Stars? It's, uh, it's still a bit surreal, to be honest. I can't, I can't believe that that they talked me into it. But here we are, and we're having a good time, and it's uh, it's been a pretty fun journey so far. All right, is this more intense than taking a green flag? Uh, not quite, not quite. <laughs> you know, there's there's, <laughs> there's a little a little less on the line, but there's a lot of people watching, so it's. It's intense in different ways, for sure. Uh, you seem to be surprising a lot of people with your footwork. How difficult was this for you? You know, honestly, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, and, you know, tragically, Sharna will be the first to agree that I, I don't come with a ton of natural dancing ability. But um, <laughs> what, I, what I lack in ability, I think I make up, I make up in, uh, in focus and in determination and, you know, just hard work. I mean, I... I don't like doing things, you know, halfway. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all out. And so I've been, you know, really focusing on this and, uh, and you know, trying to improve and, and listen to the notes that Sharna's got and, and just kind of, you know, try to get myself uh, up to par as best I can. Clearly your injury hasn't affected your dancing in any way. 
No, I mean, the way it didn't affect the driving, hasn't affected the dancing. I've been uh, incredibly lucky in that sense. So how much time do you spend doing this? How, how, how much preparation is learning these dances? A lot. I mean, the uh, the dance last week was a bit of a unique situation because we did have the, the season finale of the Verizon IndyCar series up in Sonoma. So I only got two days rehearsal with Sharna before, uh, before the show on Monday. So that one was kind of thrown together, but... Uh, you know, normally you're you're rehearsing five days of the week and then performing uh, on Monday, and then you kind of have Tuesday sort of off for the result show. So it's uh, it's a six day a week, you know, four to eight hours a day kind of program, depending on what day we're talking. Your season isn't over. How do you balance this? Well, it, it was tough. You know, we had Watkins Glen and Sonoma kind of between the announcements and uh, and the end of the season, so two races to get through was a bit of a challenge, you know, but everybody's, not everybody, there are other people on the show that, that are facing similar things, you know, Lori's on her Kellogg's tour with uh, the post-Olympics thing, Jana's on tour with her concerts, uh, Vanilla Ice is on tour and still filming his other show, and so, you know, all of us had uh, had other responsibilities that we had to kind of keep up with, and you find uh, an hour here and 45 minutes there to you practice in a parking lot if you have to. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. It's not like you need the entire team in a track and a hauler and stuff. All you need is a wide open space and a stereo. There you go. So what is the what did the team say? What what were guys saying around the garage? Well, you know, I mean, there's obviously going to be the uh, the jovial jokes and uh, and jabs taken at you, but that's to be expected. And I, I would have been disappointed if they hadn't. But, um, you know, I think after the first dance, certainly it was uh, it went very well. And like you said, people were surprised myself, you know, no one more than myself, to be honest. But um, it's, it's been good. You know, the support's been huge. And the IndyCar community is, is such a big family, not just with the, you know, within the drivers and, and the competitors and the teams, but within all the fans. And uh, we're really feeling that love right now and really needing those votes. So it's been good. Yeah, I guess there's a bit of politicking, too. Uh, what are you learning from this experience? What are you going to take away from this, do you think? You know what? I mean, one of the big things for me, and I think a lot of people leave you know, the show with this same sort of mentality, is it really just opens your eyes to what you're capable of if you set your mind to it. You know, this is, this is not, a, uh, not an exercise or a hobby pastime that I ever thought I would have any ability in or any interest in, really, but... The more you do it, the more you understand it, the more you appreciate it, the more you enjoy it. And ultimately, the better you get at it. And so there's uh, you know, there's a lot of positive lessons to kind of take out of something like this. Obviously, you're certainly not new uh, in front of the camera. You've been doing this for a while. You're a great commentator when you when you speak on this stuff. Is there a, is there a career for TV uh, for you after racing? Uh, who knows? Who knows on that one? I mean, I'm hoping that I'm firmly in a race seat for, uh, for many years to come, and we can, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. All right, James Hinchcliffe has been with us, IndyCar driver and, of course, contestant on Dancing with the Stars. Uh, so I guess the, the message here to all the fans is just get out and vote, vote, vote. Exactly right. You know, it's, it's unfortunate because, of, you know, Canada is uh, not eligible to vote this year, which is, uh, which is too bad because I've definitely been feeling the love on social media from everybody back in uh, back in Canada, but, you know, there's uh, hopefully a lot of racing fans in the States that are paying attention, and hopefully, hopefully we're making some new ones with, uh, with the dances that we're putting on. Do you think this does anything to promote your career or that of indie racing? Oh, no doubt. I mean, when Elio came on the show back in 07, I think it opened a lot of people's eyes to, uh, 
to IndyCar racing and some of the personalities in it. And, you know, we're really kind of hoping the same thing this time around. We, uh, we're a growing motorsports property, which right now is hard to find on earth. And, um, and IndyCar is really trending in a positive way. And this is just another good way to kind of open, uh, open this up to a demographic that wouldn't necessarily tune into a race. Uh, any chance that you and Helio are going to team up and do a little dance-off for us? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the uh, the producers of the show are always trying to come up with cool ideas. So if you, I'm not going to say anything to them. But if that idea makes it to them from someone else, I'm sure they'd jump on it. All right, James Hinchcliffe has been with us, contestant on Dancing with the Stars, and of course, Indy car driver, Oakville native. James, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated, and good luck. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Take care.